0: Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today is literary fiction and nonfiction agent, Susan Gollum, who's been in the business for over 28 years. She founded the Susan Gollum Literary Agency in 1988 with Jonathan Franzen as her first client and joined Writers House in 2015. Her other authors include award winners and bestsellers such as William T. Volman, Rachel Kushner, Noah Hawley, Nell Zink, Janelle Brown, Lexi Freeman, Angie Kim, and more. She joins me today to talk about all the things you wanted to learn from agents, from the literary market, query letter do's and don'ts, finding the right agent for your book, knowing when to start querying and when to give up, Where AI is taking the writing industry and the conglomeration of all of the publishing houses and so much more. Susan Gollum, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. This will be fun. I was saying off air that when I was talking to Angie Kim two or three weeks ago, and she was talking about finding you and falling in love with you and how she chose you. And I was like, this is a woman we need to talk to. So I'm really excited for this conversation out to head to a writer's conference in Kauai
1: where Angie's going to be as well. And it was actually years ago when I first went to this conference that my intern who had read the early draft of what became Miracle Creek wrote and said, you you have to read this. And I'm like, oh, my God, but I'm at this conference. And so it's so funny how
0: it's come full circle. I love a writer's conference in Koi. That's a, a nice place to do those. So I love talking to agents who've been in the industry for a long period of time to get all of their perspectives. But maybe we just start with what got you in and what keeps you in in agenting.
1: I bounced around a lot after college. I was an English major, but I had a sub major in theatrical literature. So I loved theater. My first job was working for an independent theater producer and I worked at great performances. But there there wasn't a lot of opportunity in New York. And there were always openings at literary agencies because there's a high turnover for reasons that I we can get into. But I eventually landed at an agency that represented authors but also playwrights, screenwriters, and television writers. So I felt I had a foot still in those worlds. And it was at that agency when I had been an assistant for about three years and kind of knew how to do everything that Jonathan Franson's novel came in over the transom. And that's what cemented my passion for the business and
0: feeling that I knew what I was doing. Did you pluck him out of the slush pile? Exactly. Yes, it was wow. total slush. Yeah. And in those years of being in it, talk about some of the changes you've seen and whether the thing that originally got you into it keeps you in it, or if it's something else over all of these years. Well, the essentials have
1: have remained the same, which is discovering writers, working with them to develop their work to become its best version of what it wants to be, and then matchmaking with editors and getting it to the the right house that will then do a good job, you know, and staying on the editors to make sure that they're fulfilling promises and and that every opportunity is being explored. That is still what keeps me in it. There's nothing more gratifying than making that call to an author and saying, we've just sold your book. You know, I have an offer of X and, and they're like, Oh my God, you know, uh, now I can, I remember Glenn David Gold said, now I have a dowry to marry my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You know, some of it is really life-changing money from people who are working minimum wage and then suddenly, you know, they can afford a house and cars and things like that. So that's always really, really gratifying. But the business has changed a lot. There used to be many more independent publishers there was less conglomerization. It, it was, it was starting. Bantam, Doubleday, and Dell had been individual publishers and they kind of merged first. That was the big first big merger. I saw Bantam Doubleday Dell, then just became sort of one publishing house, even though there were three distinct imprints within that house. And then Random House had Knopf and Vintage and Pantheon. Then they merged with. Bantam Double Day Dell, and then Putnam came along. And so that's when you got this behemoth called PRH, you know, Penguin Random House. Um, Crown had been its own publisher when wow. I first started and, and they got bought by Random House. And then other places like Algonquin have now become part of Hachette, which is the mm-hmm. little Brown group. So there used to be, I, I think, maybe a big seven, and then it was six, and now, now there's really just a big four. And mm. uh, we were really worried that Harper Collins might and might have ended up the owner of Simon and Schuster, which would have made it a big three. And luckily, that didn't happen. So.
0: We were talking offline, and we can get into this a little bit later, but we were talking offline about an article that came out in The New Yorker, I don't know, two days ago or something, and I'll put a link to that in our show notes, but talking about all of these conglomerations and the impact on the industry and the impact on authors and what it means to be an author now, which is a much more corporate endeavor than a artistic endeavor in a lot of ways. So yikes! Yeah, but let's, let's get into that in a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the types of books and the types of clients you represent and the types of books and clients you would not represent.
1: Um, my list is about 60% fiction, 40% nonfiction, and the fiction ranges from literary and very literary like William T. Vollmann, to and Jonathan Franzen and Rachel Kushner, and then getting more to what is called sort of the sweet spot, which is, or book club fiction, which is really good fiction that has really good characterizations, but is very accessible and compulsively readable. And, and I've done then a little more commercial than that, but that's not really the kind of books that I read. So I don't know that market very well. So I would say the fiction is the the book club fiction and the literary fiction. And then my nonfiction is a lot of memoir and also books that I feel make a difference. So I, I have one book that just got an incredible, the author had a great interview with Alison Stewart at WNYC. It's called An Inconvenient Cop. And he basically was a black, Police officer who blew the whistle on the quota system that the department has had and never cops never never pun intended cops who you know, <laughs> will not, know that they have this and and really how that's behind all these murderous traffic stops is it's basically cops needing to fill their quota that week and they're desperate and so they chase somebody with a broken tail light and they end up killing them you know so so that's a really important book that shines a light on a really. Huge issue. One book I'm I'm so proud of is Yvonne Chouinard's manifesto. He's the founder of Patagonia Inc. And so it was a book that was sort of about how he created the company, but then his manifesto for how to run a socially responsible business. So that that was very exciting to to represent. And I represent a, like during COVID, I took on incredible doctor who runs the ICU at Vanderbilt College and just how he tries really hard to find the human in the patient because medicine has become so reliant on technology. And a lot of times doctors lose sight of listening to their patients and and having a more humane treatment.
0: Tell me a little bit about some of the latest fiction you represent, because I'm interested in the ways the world has changed in the last five, seven years, let's Hmm. just say since 2016, and whether or not those changes are impacting the way people read and what they read. And I can really see that in nonfiction, but I was wondering if that's true in fiction as well. Yeah, I think that what's been very disheartening and is kind of
1: demoralizing and, and making the editors be like, deer in the headlights is a lot of the old levers that would sell books like a great New York Times book review or, you know, getting on public radio or really smart advertising. It just isn't work or prizes, you know, the books can have all these things and still, it doesn't really move the needle in terms of sales. And, you know, why is that? And it, it just seems that, a lot of people are on their phones and very distracted, and they are just sort of reacting to things that go viral of which we don't have much control so You've probably heard of book talk, which has become a thing for pretty much for more commercial writers and the People who post these little videos usually react to something that's got a lot of scariness in it, or it's funniness, or love, or something that they can sort of emote in their, you know, <laughs> ten seconds of a TikTok. And it's just become crazy that that's kind of what's capturing people's imaginations. And I think with literary fiction, also, we're in it's such a relentless news cycle that all feels very crucial. That in the past when you have a reader who is looking forward to curling up with a great book, that might be a little challenging, you know, but they want to spend time with it. If they feel like they're going to have to put it down every second, there's a new climate catastrophe or a terrible shooting. It's hard to get back into the book. So I think people are just not going there.
0: I'm so glad you're saying this because you're giving language and reason behind a lot of my confusion because I look at like if you go on the, the dreaded Amazon and you see what books like have thousands, thousands of reviews. And I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, but they're often just not not great books. And then you look at the things that have won the Pulitzer or the National Book Award, and they have, you know, thousand reviews, but not 25,000 reviews. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm always just left scratching my head going, what what is going on here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think
1: that there's also a lot of terrible like It's part of this social media thing where there are these hot takes on books that can really sink a book that's more nuanced. I don't remember the title, but there was something that uh, apparently sold for a lot of money to publisher was a really funny satire I think it is about a black woman dating a white man and just people started attacking it on Goodreads. And so it kind of buried the book that, you know, could have had a really fun and, and insightful, irreverent reading experience. So there's just so much that's, I mean, publishing has always been a lottery. It's always been publishers, they place their bets on these books and sometimes they pay a lot of money and sometimes that works out and other times there's a book they think is amazing and it just doesn't connect and nobody can really explain why. But what's happened is with all the bean counters and control and all the the mergers, the books that publishers would often buy because they had their bestsellers, but they wanted award winners or they had something really quirky that they just really loved. Everybody loves it. And that, so they take a flyer on these books, but those aren't panning out. So they're much more risk averse. And it's just creating a homogenization of what they're all looking for. They're all looking for this, this kind of book club fiction that they hope Jenna Bush and Reese Witherspoon and Oprah and Good Morning America will like, (laughs) because that seems to be the only other thing that really works.
0: You're giving such perfect language to this New Yorker article. And they were making this point that you know, the Cormac McCarthy's of the world would not exist or succeed today because unless your debut novel hits it out of the park, publishers aren't going to stay with you. And so those older authors who developed a career over time and a following over time and the publishers kind of gave them the time and space to do that, that's just gone now. You know, they, yeah. they don't do that anymore. I don't know if choosing by committee is the right way to phrase it, but they're not taking risks on these nuanced I don't know if you'd say quieter books. It is by committee.
1: I mean, really, what's happened is like the first twenty-five pages of your book have to be so grabby. You know, they have to like you can't put it down because then the the editor, in order to buy it, then has to give those pages to somebody in publicity, somebody in marketing, somebody in sales, who are looking at a ton of things. So they only have time to read 25 pages and decisions are made based on that. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. How many books do you remember when you were young that you handed to a friend and you said, you know, it takes a little while to get into this book, but then it's amazing. That just, that's not going to happen. And the problem for really good books is when you want to have a character arc and you want a character character, who might not be that sympathetic, but then who grows and there's redemption. Again, you know, if the editors and everybody within the house feel this character, they don't like them, that's it. Then the first 25
0: pages, they have to be sympathetic and it's, it's, it's really depressing. Yeah. Actually, 25 pages seems like a lot, probably five. Yeah. And I'm glad you said the word TikTok, because I have a 22-year-old who's, she is a voracious reader, but she gets her books from TikTok, which for those of us, you know, over 50, it feels just like so foreign. But it makes me wonder if authors today have to be tech-savvy enough to be advertising, not just on Instagram, the usual ones. But I mean, you know, if, if they need a platform on TikTok and a certain number of followers. I don't know if that plays into your equation of whether a book is going to be successful or not now. Yeah, it's it's hard. Most authors are not really performers.
1: They they're usually to <laughs> be in a room by themselves with their their book and so if, for them to create a TikTok seems just such a unrealistic ask, but then you hope that maybe they know some young people they can enlist to to th- I mean that's what I'm advising my authors even though I It's everybody feels so squishy about it, really, because nobody really quite knows what makes some of these go viral. So when you're trying to create that, I think it's it's hard. But and I and that's where it is right now. And it's also for a certain kind of book, I think. I mean, I think there are some maybe edgy literary novels that appeal to young people that Maybe a TikTok would work, but for a writer who's middle aged who's writing about middle aged issues, I don't know that that's going to work.
0: Let's hope not. Yeah, I would be wrong. I don't let's know. Hope, let's hope there's no. So we should get into the nuts and bolts. I opened this up to our regular listeners, our patrons, and there's a lot of questions. So we're gonna we're gonna get into some of the nuts and bolts of um, specifically of query letters, and what you look for in a strong query, what might be a deal killer that you would see. But let's kind of start there of things that you look for in a good query letter and maybe in an example or two of a query letter that has crossed your desk that really made you sit up and take notice. Oh, I put you on the spot. Yeah, (laughs) there
1: have been several. I just can't think of them right now. The query letter is really important because it's the first thing the sees or their assistant, whoever's got looking at these. And it it needs to be very well written, and it needs to be in a couple of paragraphs, not any longer, to really give you the nuts and bolts of what this book is, the premise, the kind of where the plot goes, and what your credentials are. It don't, you don't have to have come out of a writing program or have gotten your stories published, but that helps if you if you have those credits, you want to put that in. The things that are deal breakers in query letters is when we get them and a million other agents are also copied on it. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. taking the time uh, to individually query you. And then then those who do, if they get your name spelled wrong, that's also not a good sign. And also you want to get a query letters that Art feel targeted to what you represent. So if somebody's sending me a romance novel, that that's immediately I'm not something I'm familiar with, so I'm not going to to take that on. So so somebody who's querying agents should do their research, which is easy to do now with the internet. You know, back in the day, you had to hope that the writer had an acknowledgments page and and reference their agent, but now pretty much you can find out who the agent is for the books that you like. And if your writing is similar to something you admire, and you find out who the agent is, that's who you should target and tell them why you're targeting them.
0: And how important is personal connections to you? I guess I should say, what percentage of your clients would you say come out of this slush pile versus people who were kind of handed to you on a somewhat of a platter? I still find
1: great. I mean, Angie Kim was slush. Uh Mbou who won the uh, Penn Faulkner and was an Oprah pick, was slush. So mm-hmm. there's gold and then there are hills, and it's it's really fun. As far as a personal connection goes, it's very funny. I've been doing this so long, long before Google. I would get a manuscript. I would read it. If I liked it, I called up the writer and invariably it was a really nice person on the other end of the phone. There even if I'm reading something that's a dark novel or has, you know, morbid humor or you know, something that's like twisty and th- the person is nice. There's a humanity that comes off the page that I guess I somehow sense. So yeah, the connection is, I mean, what what I want to hear if no book comes in perfect. I mean, that's just impossible. And so when I read something and I feel like it needs some work, I want to call the author and say, I'd love this. I'd love to take it on, but I think we need to do X, Y, and Z. And, and if that author goes, yeah, you know, I wasn't sure that was working or okay. Yeah. I see what, you know, if they, they really respond to what I'm saying, then that's, that's a great way to start. And then they go off and they revise and, sometimes they've nailed it that first time. Sometimes they overcorrect something. So we have to do another draft. And I mean, sometimes it takes like four or five drafts before I feel it's ready to go out.
0: I think that was one of the things that Angie Kim had called out about you was your, A, your willingness to work with her, and then your willingness to stay with her, even once you've signed her with a publisher, you would kind of stay involved in that process. And I think that is not always so common amongst agents. You know, sometimes they hand you off, you know, their job is done, and then when your next book is ready, we'll talk again. But they don't stay with them for the whole process. So that was something she called out about you that she really appreciated. I don't know how common that is for agents. I think there are agents like myself who do stay very involved, but but there are a lot
1: who don't. I, I wouldn't be able to really quantify it. It's true that after you sell a book, the agent we become a little powerless because we're not the ones creating the jackets or working with the sales force or coming up with budgets. You know, it's all we're kind of at the mercy of the publisher. But it's good to be a, a thorn in their side, and you know, if they're to make sure that the the author has a jacket that they like that that or that they love, and and to keep telling them to go back to the drawing board if it's not working, and the same with coming up with there we usually have a zoom call with the the publicity and marketing people at the publishing house and then that's where i can advocate for well can we try this sort of advertising or is there a way to reach these people through you know whether it's blurbs or you know other kinds of targeting methods so i really try to be as involved as i can to make sure the book gets its best shot
0: out there you mentioned taking books that aren't a hundred percent of the way there and i'm I'm kind of curious and I know this is going to be hard to quantify too but kind of how much you would see when you would take a book on even though it isn't all the way there like what sorts of issues you're willing to work through with a writer would it be just like a minor plot thread that doesn't make sense or problematic issues with a a character or because I assume it would have to be you know at least like 90%. Yeah.
1: Like-, like I said, it's 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 so hard to write a perfect novel. I mean, there's always something like this character doesn't feel fully fleshed out or this doesn't sound like something they would do or the ending is not, you know, you haven't stuck the landing. It it needs to end with more uh impact or profundity or whatever. Sometimes, though, it's it's major work. I mean, sometimes I've had books that are really, really long that really need to be cut down. Or in the case of Behold the Dreamers, uh, which was Mbolo Mboy's first novel, it's about a Cameroonian couple who come over um, as immigrants. And the, the man gets a job as a limo driver for a stockbroker at Lehman Brothers. And the novel originally had the point of view of those two men and their wives. And the author was from Cameroon and the white characters just didn't seem as vivid and textured as the black characters, which is understandable. I mean, she she really knew her Cameroonian couple. So I said, you know, if you can somehow get the backstories of these white characters, in there, but it's still just being the point of view of the two Cameroonians, I think this could work. And, and that was that was a lot of work, but she did it. She did it, it was great.
0: We'll be back with more from literary agent Susan Gollum in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A a quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. We had opened this show up to our patrons to ask all of their questions of Susan in advance. That's one of the few perks that we offer up there to our regular listeners are the ability to submit their own questions for authors coming up, post the authors that are expected to be coming up, post a schedule of what's upcoming, provide you with writing tips and tricks, some of those things. So those are a few of the perks that we offer up there. If you are interested in checking us out, it's patreon.com slash writers on writing. And also check out our bookshop.org page. We just did an affiliate page with bookshop.org to sell some of the books from our guests, as well as books that we both recommend, craft writing books and some of our favorite books. You can find us up there at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Susan Gollum. You mentioned earlier that it's not necessary for people to come out of MFA programs. And I I was wondering if you could say just a a few words more about your feelings about MFAs, because I do feel like that's how a lot of writers these days, the big ones at least, are meeting their agents. They have a lot of exposure to agents who either come to the schools and recruit or otherwise, and it, it gives them... You know, sort of a <laughs> cut—a cut in the front of the line. How important do you see that MFA degree, and how much money do you think people should be willing to spend? Because we're having all these debates about higher education and the costs and values of it right now. So, I'm just curious about your insights on that.
1: Yeah, there are some really, really good M- MFA programs, but it's not a guarantee that your book is going to be really great because sometimes all the workshopping and everything that's done can sometimes iron out the idiosyncrasies that make a book special so when you talked about you know buying by committee sometimes there's workshopping that's done that kind of makes a book there's like a, every time i get a novel i still i still print it out i have a pen in my hand and i i mark it up as i go because i think If I'm going to love this novel, I don't want to have to reread it and edit it. So I just start marking it up. And sometimes I'll get a novel, often from somebody from one of these programs, and I never touch the pen to paper. There's nothing wrong with the book at all, but there's nothing right. It's like, it's just inert. It's sort of all tidy and it's like a hospital cornered bed that a hotel makes, you know, like everything's just fine, but it just doesn't have the aliveness, the spark or the kind of something that makes it distinctive. So it's not a guarantee as far as whether it's worth the cost. I think if you're a writer who really needs deadlines, you know, really needs structure and feedback, I think it's really good. I think an MFA does give you the opportunity to be able to teach. So if you're not able to make a living with your your books, you have that. As a career path or, you know, something that's a sideline that enables you to do both. But, you know, Jonathan Franzen didn't go
0: to a writing program. Um, I don't think, I mean, many, many of my authors have not. So. Are there things they could do outside of getting an MFA that would give them exposure to either exposure to you or some leg up without spending that amount of money. Like I I was talking to an agent the other day and she teaches, or at least guest lectures at like UCLA and USC in their adult programs at night. You know, just, they, they aren't MFA programs, but they're just kind of adult extension classes. And I think she meets some of her clients that way. And I was wondering if there are things writers could do short of doing a formal MFA that would help them out.
1: Well, there are a lot of writers conferences and I'm, I'm heading to one next week, where Angie will be. And and you pay. Some of them, I think you can get scholarships too. But part of going to the conferences, you can listen to panels that the agents are doing, but also different conferences do different things. So sometimes I do workshops at a conference. Sometimes people are pitching to me where you know they sit down and have a half hour to pitch me what their book is about. So that's also a way to meet agents and connect with them.
0: Going back to the, to the dreaded query letter, (laughs) it (laughs) seems like there are two kind of big ways that people get into their queries. And one is kind of through the personal introduction. We talked about this of, you know, why they chose you and why you would be the right agent for them. And some is just diving straight into the pitch of what the book is about. Is there a preference in your mind about how you like to get into those query letters or does it not matter?
1: It doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I don't really want to hear. It, it, you know, an author can cite a couple of my books and say, I, "I love these books," and I think mine has some things in common with them. And then they should go right into their pitch. But they also don't even have to say that. I mean, if you if you write, you know, part of the query letter is one it 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 should be well written because it should show your professionalism and that you understand being a novelist is a job, and you have to. You have to have proper spelling and proper grammar. But two, you have to really understand the commercial aspect of your book, not not necessarily that it's a, a commercial novel, genre novel of some kind, but that you understand, you know, what makes it unique, what's its concept, what's its premise, what's the thing that makes it, will make it stand out. And so having an understanding of that and being able to convey it in a captivating way lets me know, okay, this is a writer who knows how to write. This is someone who's got something interesting to say and they can say it well. And that,
0: that's really what those two paragraphs need to do. And let's talk about comps. Cause we had a lot of questions on uh, that. The dreaded. Uh, <laughs> the dreaded comps. Yeah. Everything we say today is the, the dreaded. Word. I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. So how important are they? How recent do they need to be? How do you, you, know, uh, how, do you how do you recommend going about finding them?
1: It's so bad. I mean, you know, editors always say they want something fresh and original. And that's what I'm drawn to. I like something fresh and original. It's something I haven't seen before. And so then they say, well, I love this. So what are the comps? And I say, there are no comps, because it's fresh and original. <laughs> it's not like anything else. And it, it's gotten so aggravating. I really, I've never had to, I've, I've had, a quality list and people know what I have, so that I've never felt that I needed to come up with comps until recently. I mean, sometimes it, if something comes to mind that's really an apt comparison, I will always put in a pitch letter. But now it is true. They want these comps, they want them to be books that have come out recently. There's some houses that want those books to have been published by their house so that they can say to themselves, well, we know how to sell this book because we've done it before.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe the comps are the canary in the coal mine of what we were talking about in the publishing industry of books being published by committee and not taking too many risks on things that they don't think are going to sell very well. And if they don't have something to write in the quote on the back of what else it will remind them of, they feel like it's a, a risk.
1: Yeah. It's become very, you know, I started when I was young, I, I worked for some film companies, you know, before I landed as a book agent. And we we always it was always very distasteful how in Hollywood everything was very reductive. Everything had to be, you know, Jurassic Park meets, you know, gone with the wind or something. You know? <laughs> right. Crazy. But but you know, that, that that would just tell you what it is. And, and and we were just like, ugh, you know, and but that's how it's gotten in publishing. It's the same serve mentality. We need to get across really quickly what this book is and who's going to buy it.
0: I guess a related question to that are categories and how important it is for for writers to fit into a specific genre. And this question from a listener, why isn't quote book club fiction a category, but the way you were talking about it earlier in the show, it sounds like maybe it perhaps is. It is, it is, but it's, it's kind of, A very broad category. Squishy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, But how important is it for somebody to really fit straight into some sort of genre? I mean, is that important for your marketing of the book? Well,
1: I think more and more that's what publishers are looking for. They they kind of want to know who's going to read this book. And it's not enough anymore for them to feel literary readers will read this book. That's just too vague. It's too wide an audience. It's like they they want sort of these subcultures that they can hit. So, you know, if it's a literary novel about surfers, they know, like, okay, <laughs> you know, or golfers or, you know, like, they, they, but, but I think some of that thinking is about genre. So they, you know, they know kind of certain levers to pull with genre fiction. So if something is genre adjacent, so it's a literary mystery thriller or a literary courtroom drama or a literary horror, I mean, that's the new thing. It gives it a little bit of a direction that the publisher can feel some confidence in.
0: It is funny how you want something completely fresh, original, and yet tried and true and how people are how people navigate that i had a friend who queried agents a while ago about a literary fiction book with with a, a strong polio stream through it and she got great feedback but somebody said there's too many polio books and i'm like are there are there too many polio books i didn't yeah <laughs> no, that's the other thing it's like
1: you're a writer in your room and you don't know all the books that have been published and may have failed you know i mean publishers sometimes make those decisions like this book is part of it is set in haiti and we did a book on haiti and didn't work so no you know they won't even read it yeah they won't tell you that they'll say sure send it oh it's great it's great but you know we don't see a way to publish it but they, they make these
0: these snap judgments well and the number of manuscripts that must come across your desk I don't know if you're looking for reasons more to say yes or reasons more to say no, because you've got, I assume you have so many. So many. And I
1: feel like I have to get tougher with myself because in the past, I knew if there was a book I really liked and I knew it needed work and I knew it was going to be about you know a year's worth of work or several drafts. But I, if I had confidence in the author and I knew that what would come out would be great, I was very certain that I could sell it for a lot of money and it would do really well in the marketplace. But now all that unpaid work that I do, you know, that it's all speculative work. I'm not paid by the hour I'm paid, you know, on commission. So if I spend all that time and it doesn't sell, that's really not only heartbreaking for the author, but it's, it's heartbreaking for me. And it's also, you know, not a way that I can keep making a living. So I have to be smarter about what I take on feeling like, yes, this will sell. I know this will sell because of these arbitrary reasons that these publishers are coming up with. That's what's so maddening.
0: Yeah. Well, and it also seems to me that so many people, either through the allure of self-publishing or something else, it just seems like there's more writers than ever now or at least, you know, they hold themselves out as writers.
1: It's shocking. I remember when I was very young and I, and, you know, I'd be reading these novels and, and I just couldn't believe that people thought they were writers. Like they were writing something so bad. Like, you know, like wow. how do you, how do you call yourself a writer when you're writing something so bad? And I just think that, yeah, a lot of people have, it's not kind to say, but, you know, delusions about their abilities and, and, And so there's just a lot of stuff there's, and yeah, there's a lot of submissions and it does seem like there's more and more people out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a funny industry because, you know, you wouldn't walk into a hospital and assume that you could operate on someone. (laughs) They never done it before. Right. (laughs) And yet that's pretty much what, (laughs) pretty much what's happening. But
1: you know, and yeah, it's interesting because there are some writers who just They've they've never taken a course, they've never done anything but maybe have read a lot, and they've internalized what they've read and they write a great book. And a lot of people feel that you can't really teach someone to be a good writer. You can teach them how to revise and edit what they
0: have, but the initial talent, you're born with it. And maybe that maybe that's the problem we all wish that was us and so we have to be told no it is not you right yeah right yeah. but you know people who are writing
1: a genre fiction there there are formulas and and so you can really study those formulas there are a lot of books out there that will tell you how to how to craft a, a detective novel or something and you
0: can teach yourself to do it but whether you do it well that's another question Well, and to go back to your prior point, because I do want to point that out just to read, 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 read. And you're right. A lot of people do internalize good writing just from that's that's probably a better teacher than some of the MFA programs out there. Yeah. Yeah. And also another thing people can do if they don't want to pay or can't afford
1: an MFA program is if they can find other writers that they can form a writing group with. That's often very helpful. And a lot of clients who are on their third, fourth, fifth books are in writing groups, because it's nice to get feedback from your peers, and it keeps you disciplined and meeting deadlines. And that's a way to get feedback that you can take to heart.
0: Yeah. And that probably tells you a little bit about, I was going to ask you when a writer would know it's time to query an agent. And I know that's another squishy, unanswerable question, but- you know, I do see a lot of writers who are either rushing way too fast to query or they've been toiling for 15 years and they won't let it go and you're like right. just right. do it. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't there. know if you have any insight on when when is the right time or how to how you know. I guess once you've revised something to death and you're just changing commas here and there maybe it's Yeah,
1: not. yeah,
0: exactly. Um again, if you have feedback
1: from other readers, not your mother, not your husband, you know, people who are can be as objective as possible. And if you've gotten the feedback, and, and it's
0: working for them, I think, and you feel like you've done the most work you can, I think, then it's time. So you you accept email submissions. And then I assume that no news back from you is bad news. <laughs> I don't know if you if you personally respond to every single submission that you get, or if it's just, oh, it's you know, if you possible, I mean, my
1: assistant just finally, she's so happy because she finally got got caught up with, you know, the pile of submissions that had been accruing over a period where um, I had one assistant who wasn't really paying attention. And so sometimes it can take, so it's, so no news is not bad news necessarily because there is so much and we have to process it all. But I would say if you've queried somebody and you haven't heard back from them in two months, you could follow up and, you know, it's, it's good to be a squeaky wheel, not, not a bit of a squeaky wheel because, and then if you're lucky enough that you've, if you've queried several agents and one has made you an offer, you want to let the other agents know as soon as possible and give them time to read. And then you can choose amongst the agents if you have more than one offer. Or if you decide you want to accept that first offer, you want to let the other agents know that not to waste their time. Because the, the worst thing is when I've started reading something and I'm like halfway through and the person's already signed with someone and was a complete waste of my time and, and potential income. So
0: yeah. Angie did share on the podcast when she was on that she the the way she found you was she got an offer from another agent and then let all of the agents know that she was querying hey there's an offer on the table you better sit up and take notice and she said of the 10 agents she had queried eight of them got back to her within the next 24 hours I think yeah yeah so yeah. yeah hard for us because we
1: have so many books we need to be reading. A lot of them are our current clients who've been working on their second novel. They want me to read it before we send it to the editor. There's always so much to read. And then when you get that email that says, I have an offer, then you have to put down your own client's work, read this other book, and then have a beauty contest, right? If you like it, then you're, you're basically trying to convince this author to go with you. And you don't always know what the author wants to hear. Some of them want to hear that I will do a lot of editing with you. Some of them don't want to hear that at all. Some of them want to be at a small agency. Some of them want to be a big agency. Some of them want to be, with the agent who represents Jonathan and some of them feel like, no, I don't want to be that. You know, you just don't know really. And you kind of do your best little song and dance and hope that, you know, they they pick you. And I was so happy when Angie picked me. And I remember another author, I was just literally jumping for joy. Like I'd never, like so excited, you know, so.
0: I'm glad you said that because that is one of my curiosities beyond the work itself what you each should be looking for when interviewing each other about what you want and what you don't want and angie had mentioned a agent she totally connected with and thought they'd make best friends you know that that she really loved this person but The person's feedback to her just felt off, just didn't seem to jive with her own perception of what she wanted the book to be, which obviously would be a red flag. But yeah, are there other things that each side of the equation should be looking for in the other when knowing the match would be right? Well, I think the author should, yes, exactly
1: feel that the agent gets what you want to do and is going to help you do it better and that you have a rapport with them and that you feel comfortable with them. There are a lot of, Angie's the one who always tells me, because she knows so many writers and she'll tell me they're so afraid of their agents. And I just think it's crazy. I, I know you should you should feel... You know, as agents, we we play many roles. We have a maternal role, and a psychiatrist role, and a lawyer role, and a sales role, and and you you want your agent to be available to you and to hold your hand through this very tumultuous process. Even when it's good, it's there's lots. It's like a roller coaster. So, I think that's something that authors should look for. So that's what an an author wants. should should feel with their agent. And as an agent, what I want with my author is someone who is willing to work hard and, you know, knows that this is, they need to be professional. And when I say professional, I just mean not going on social media and like, you know, taking down, you know, saying terrible things about other writers or other publishing houses or whatever you want to be, sort of a good publishing citizen. And and I look for someone who. I also want to like them, I mean, it, because it becomes a very personal experience and, and there are periods when you're on the phone a lot with your client, I mean, during the editing process or during the submission process, the selling process. So so you want someone that you enjoy. And a lot of my clients become very good friends. I mean, I love my clients. I just saw one, I haven't seen her in five years because she lives in Australia and it was just so nice to see her again. So. Mm.
0: Have you, or do you still work with Jonathan Franzen? Is that kind of your longest term? Yeah. Yep. Yep. We,
1: he's one year older than me and we basically grew up in the business together. So it's a a very special relationship and he's a really great guy. And and there was a lot of, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation on, on the web, but he he really is really good guy, and loved, Mm -hmm. loves to champion female authors and has done it a lot. So.
0: I'll tell him to write, write faster.
1: I know. I just sat back him <laughs> yesterday. And he said, Susan, you know, it takes me five years between books. And I'm like, yeah, I know,
0: but I can't sell anything. Because <laughs> that will be sold immediately. Yes.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. it's already been. I mean, you know, I did it yeah. two yeah. years ago. So it's like, um. but yeah, we, you know, I, I never push my clients to, I never want to push them, but.
0: Sometimes yeah. a little, a little bit of you know, encourage. Yeah, don't push. Encourage. Yeah, <laughs> so he's worth waiting for. So we'll we'll wait as long as we have to. That's fine. Yeah. Um. And in terms of self publishing, if a if a writer has self published in the past or has has tried self publishing with the book, they're now well, obviously they wouldn't come to you with the book they're now pitching. But I'm just wondering how much of a scarlet letter that is on a writer if they've gone that route either in the past or how how do you view that i'm not really
1: even sure where the publishers are with that it keeps changing they there was a period where they really loved finding these self published books that somehow took off and then they could buy them and get a larger audience and sometimes they just there there's just a bit of a bias against it right they're feeling that if a pub if an author's doing that, then they're doing it as a um an ego kind of thing or or that they were turned down everywhere and that was all they could do so that so i not to say that that's why people self publish or or the history but i but I think there is a little bit of a you know a perception out there, like you say that's a little bit of a scarlet letter but but I don't know. If somebody like sends me a really great query letter and they mention that they self-published a book, if the query is really strong and I start liking the book, I'll probably take it on and hope that the publisher won't notice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. We did have a couple of questions about age, novelist age, and in this competitive industry, does an older debut novelist have a, a more difficult time against the younger, you know, all of these splashy, 40 under 40 and 30 under 30. I don't think so. There was a period
1: when everybody wanted these like 17 year old authors. Like that was just so thrilling and the younger they were and the more good looking they were. I mean, there was such a spate of those books, but there are also great books written by older people. So I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you know, from a business standpoint, I suppose a publisher might feel a younger You know, and authors who's in their 30s or 40s will have a certain number of books in them and it's worth investing in them because it will, they'll get a number of books out of them. Um,
0: But I I don't know. I don't really, I think it's the the read. Yeah. I was waiting for the five under five list, but... (laughs) That might be coming. I know. I know. Yeah. With AI, you know, a a toddler could
1: write a genius book. You know, it's like
0: scary. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that because I was actually going to end on that that dark (laughs) as we keep saying the dreaded issue. Everything is dreaded. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I I was just kind of curious about your hope, optimism, or dread for the future, and and this issue of AI, and kind of where you see things going and what your concerns are about this. I just talked to an agent who said she wouldn't mind if a query letter, if, if a writer used chat GPT to write their query letter. Um, I don't know why I was surprised to hear that. Maybe it doesn't matter, but I am kind of curious about your feelings about AI on the writing industry and whether you feel hopeful and optimistic for where things are going in the next five or 10 years.
1: Well, I'm very concerned about AI. I think, I think that there are two ways that it's going to happen in publishing is it might create more efficiency on the publishing side, but that means people's jobs are not going to, you know, be secure, you know, just, just, you know, backroom stuff. Like, you know, the people used to come up with marketing campaigns, if they, they just can throw it into a chat GBT, then, you know. You don't need that person. So that's a bit of a concern. I think that there are authors just like I mean, people writing novels have always gone to secondary sources. You know, if they're writing a historical novel, they're gonna read some nonfiction books to get, you know, background. So it's almost like AI is a more if they if they do that as they're writing a novel and use Chat GBT instead of an actual physical book that was published twenty years ago. It I don't think there's that much difference. But I do think that I think for agents who do genre books, I think I would be worried if I was one of them, because mm. there's there, there, there could come a time where publishers just publish these AI books. I mean, yeah. and authors that they have to pay, so um and then it's a concern you know jonathan is part of this lawsuit with the authors guild because these learning models have swept up all, all these books and so you have no idea how your your honed sentences and paragraphs that you you know sweated blood over are going to appear in the other people's books or it's so it's it's a real concern um yeah to be um some sort of regulation
0: and I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, to have many of, you know, I don't know how many thousands of pages he's written across genres, but to have, or I mean, uh, you know, in um, fiction and nonfiction, but to have all of that AI training on, on him himself and to imagine it coming up with the Jonathan Franzen novel. Oh, it's such a violation. It's just Yeah. So- I mean, it's just horrifying. Yeah. We were talking about that in the context of book covers too, AI book covers, and I yeah,
1: know. I mean that that's also a thing. And I don't know, I don't know. That that would be more a question opposed to to designers. I mean, I think it maybe could be helpful when there's time pressure within a company and that they're really trying to figure out a cover, and and so they it's another tool to like maybe spark some some creative solutions. But then you, I think you would want a real human being who's then going to tweak it and, you know, make it what it should be. Human. Yeah. But I don't know. I was just listening to, and my son is at Sarah Lawrence, and they did a thing for a family and, and students on AI. And the woman who was in the art department who showed what the AIs are doing in terms of
0: art, it was pretty staggering. I mean, it was it was cool. <laughs> oh, it is. No, it's yeah. very cool. No, that's the problem. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> it's- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I have an author, Vahini Vara, who was a Pulitzer finalist for her novel, The Immortal King Rao, and she's written a lot. She was a tech reporter and a journalist, and she had one of the early, um wasn't ChatGBT, it was something else. And she wrote a piece that went viral where she prompted it. She she had a sister who died and, and she always found it too hard to write about her sister. So she put into this LLM, uh, you know, I want to write an essay about my sister who died and it would it shot back just gobbledygook. And then with each prompt, and she only had to do it five times. What eventually came out was the most beautiful piece of writing that was like full of metaphors and illusions and jumps in, you know, cerebral jumps. I mean, it was just incredible. And yeah, it was so scary because you like to think that literary fiction can't be done by an AI. This AI is no longer around because the companies developing these are trying to make them as anodyne as possible, you know, because a lot of them are bots on, you know, for companies, you know, like those chat, you know, when you have questions about, you know, how do you book your ticket and, you know, they're answering you they, So those, those large learning models are trained to be as placid and boring and sort of corporate as possible. Whereas this early version was much wilder, <laughs> more creative. Yeah. And it's scary if somebody then decides to sort of resurrect that because it, it really was stunning. But
0: did she um, write an essay about that?
1: Yeah. It was called ghosts. And yes, (laughs) I was
0: going to say, this sounds familiar. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember
0: reading that and being like, Oh my God. Yes. Yes, I do. I'll link to that in the show notes too. Cause yeah, that was, that was bananas. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, did it, were, did we cover it all? Are there things we should have said? (laughs) Was there anything else in the New Yorker piece that we didn't touch on that Oh, there was a lot in there. I, it, you know, it is it is an interesting piece, but it really was just a. It, it was kind of this to me, this sad lament of of like I say, writers like Cormac McCarthy and the beautiful relationship between Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb, mm. and you know, writers coming into Knopf in their socks and bathrobes, turning mm. in their pages, and just stuff that you know can't happen anymore. And, right, uh, right. So that that was sad. Um, it is, it's sad. Yeah, people aren't even going to the office,
1: and yeah. uh, everyone's very sort of, you know, also has to be very careful about what they say because you, you have to worry about offending people, which is, you know, sounds nice, but but also it can make for very bland writing if there's no edges to it. So. There's a lot of self-censoring people are doing that is, I think, concerning. And, you know, there there also is, yeah, like if, if you have a book and it didn't sell well through no fault of your own because your editor left and your publisher didn't care about it and they didn't do anything for it. Or um, I had a book that was published on September 11th, you know, with a full page color ad in the New York Times, you know. <laughs> oh not your fault, but your sales figures become public and then the publishing houses who are looking at your next novel won't buy it if those sales figures weren't big enough. And so y- y- you know you just become canceled basically for no fault of your own for absolutely nothing to do with your talent. And, and so that's always there, there were a couple of publishers who really didn't care about track. They just they didn't care. They were like this is a great book. We're going to publish it you know, fuck the trap. And now they're not around.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do see a lot of these, and I don't know if you have opinions about this, these small, you know, little houses that really do a lot of interesting work. And I don't know if people, do they just query those places directly without an agent because they're probably not going to make a ton of money, but they, they do do, they do kind of take more risks on a, either experimental fiction or kind of quieter novels. Oh or Yeah. Something. But my,
1: my author, I saw last night, she's written this amazing book called the book of on. Um, and it's, it's, it's just so edgy and it's, it's really um, it's very funny. And it, it's so provocative because it is sort of about a writer who gets canceled and she's sort of a, a seeker and she's so angry that she then, gets interested in on you know oh yeah (laughs) she starts you know becoming like that and then she goes to hollywood and she it's just jumping all around but it's very funny and um provocative and catapult is doing it and they've gotten hasn't published yet it's coming out in two weeks and catapult has gotten this book on so many lists like she's on like 20 you know lists of books to look out for or books we love and she's uh, going to be profiled in Esquire
0: and in New York magazine. And this is a small press doing it. So And would yeah. she have had an agent for that or did she just go to them directly? No, I sold it to them. Oh, you I sold it. Okay. Okay. Uh,
1: I, I think that because you know what's happened is because the mainstream publishers are letting so much go, these smaller presses are now having the same problem as everybody else. They get so many submissions. So they also want, you know, the agents to act as gatekeepers, really.
0: That's heartening. And so you wouldn't have made a ton of money on that, but you represented her before and and believed in the book. And so we're willing to do that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's always royalties. I mean, you know, like... You know, back back in the day, you know, or even now, you know, a, a sign of a great agent is that your book never earns out, right? Because you know the agent has sold it for so much money, there's no way you can possibly earn back the advance and start to get royalties. But for years, that was I loved it when it, I called it free money. You know, you know, a book is doing <laughs> well, and you have no idea how well it's doing. And you, this is back in the day when everything was, you know, snail mail, and you open up an envelope and there was a check. And it was like, oh my God, $40,000 here. You know, it's like, it was so much fun. So, it, you know, it's called passive income, you know, you don't have to work for it. So, so you know, yeah, books can always, I, I you know, I, I can't make a living selling a lot of small books, but, you know, for my favorite writers, i mean you know, if I can't get the
0: big people, I'll go to the smaller people, you know. Nice. Sure. Yeah. And there's some, so many great smaller houses now. And they're doing so much good work. So
1: yeah, they are. They are. They're overwhelmed. You know, they also have these backlogs. Even if they want to do your book, sometimes they can't publish it for three years. You know, the authors usually have to wait a year before their book is published. But sometimes they just don't have the resources to publish your book sooner. So that that, that is one issue they face.
0: Well, this has been great, you answered That's all cool. of our questions. That's yeah, cool. this was great. This was great. So we will link to your website in the show notes. So if people want to query you, they'll know how to find you. Okay, and, great. Um, I just really appreciate your time and your insights. And this this was great. Oh, well, my pleasure. It was lovely
1: talking to you. And you, you're, you're definitely so up on everything. So your questions were really good.
0: That was Susan Gollum. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites, barber's penonfire.com minus maristone.com. You can write to us at writersonwriting gmail.com. And you can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at Travis Barrett.mykajabi.com He also has a wealth of typewriter music up on Spotify under Just My Type. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.